Welcome to The Sacramentalist, the podcast where the ancient Christian faith is brought to bear on issues prevalent in modern culture. And I'm your host for today, Father Wesley Walker, and I'm very excited to be joined by our guest, Dr. Boyd Taylor Kuhlman, a professor in the theology department at Boston College. Dr. Kuhlman's research interests include 12th and 13th centuries, focusing on the Victorines and early Franciscans, scholasticism and medieval mysticism. He's written multiple journal articles and books, including for our purposes today, the incredibly valuable Theology of Hugh St. Victor and Interpretation. Dr. Kuhlman, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing? Thank you so much, Wesley. Uh, I'm doing fine, thank you. And it's great to be here. And I look forward to our conversation together. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, uh, listeners will know that Hugh of St. Victor is someone who is very uh, formative for me and and finding his works has been a really cool adventure and journey. Um, initially was exposed to him by Dr. Hans Borsma at Neshota during a, a class on Lexio Divina, and uh, nothing's quite been the same since. Um, a lot of what Hugh says makes a ton of sense, and the way he says it is so beautiful. Um, do you think Dr. Kuhlman, you could maybe give our listeners a little background about the Victorines. Who were they? What were they about? What made their community there at the Abbey of St. Victor unique? And and maybe tell us a little bit about Hugh himself. Sure, sure. No, I'd be happy to. And you'll have to, you'll have to stop me, I suppose, if I go on too long. There's a lot to be said or can be said about um, Hugh and the Victorines and their, their early 12th century context. So the, the place to start is Paris in the um, late 11th and early 12th century. And um, already uh, swirling around Europe and medieval Europe at this time uh, is an emerging sort of renaissance, intellectual renaissance, cultural renaissance. Sometimes it's called the 12th century renaissance. Um, a lot of people associate that word with the 14th and 15th centuries. But in fact, there was a remarkable um, fl flowering and rebirth of intellectual and cultural energy in the 12th century um, that manifests itself variously. And we, we could spend a lot of time just talking about that. There was also a, um, a more narrowly focused religious reform afoot, um, sometimes called the Gregorian reform because it was uh, often, it's often associated with Pope Gregory VII, which was focused on clergy, on trying to bring clergy back to a, a more um, authentic and and upright and and appropriate sort of lifestyle and 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 spiritual vitality so that they could uh, perform their their uh, clerical and and pastoral tasks um and part of that uh reform and renewal movement um took the form of something called um uh the canonical movement which uh and was also associated with um with a certain monastic impulse connected to the rule of St. Augustine um, that had come down through the centuries from the patristic era. Um, and so there was this movement called the um, the Canons Regular, or and, and my a friend of mine will joke that that's, that's not a reference to a military device, Canons Regular, but rather uh, Canons were um, clergy who were on the list, and the word for list there is Canon at a particular diocese, at a particular cathedral. And so the reform efforts would be focused on these on these cathedrals, on these dioceses, um, and specifically on the priests, the canons. And part of this movement was to try to get the canons to live a kind of life that was sort of semi-monastic. They would live in community, an intentional community, according to a rule, Augustine's rule. So they were sometimes called Augustinian canons as well. Um, well, that reform movement had come to Paris, or was trying to come to Paris, um, and it was struggling there were entrenched uh, interests that were resisting that reform then there were also people who were zealously per pursuing it at the very same time paris and the, and the diocese of paris had a cathedral school that was already starting to become famous and masters intellectual teachers would come from all over the place and kind of set up shop in paris we're, we're a whole century ahead of the actual university of paris but there's a school there um and there's a particular person who's come to Paris um, who's there teaching. His name is William of Champeau. Um, and William was a canon at Paris at the university at the at the at the cathedral there. He was also a master, a theological master, a teacher. And one of his students was a guy named Peter Abelard, um, who had also recently come to the city of Paris, drawn by the, all the attractions that Paris had. And um, as the story goes, we don't know exactly how the, the whole thing went down, but apparently there was some sort of 
conflict or confrontation between the young student, Peter Abelard and William Champeau. And um, Peter got the best of the battle, apparently, and kind of uh, sort of bested his teacher publicly. And so William sort of decided he would retire. And he kind of left the, the cathedral precincts and he, he went across the River Seine to the, the so-called left bank. And there was an old hermitage there uh, that had basically been abandoned. It was called, and it was dedicated to the to the saint, to Saint Victor, who was the patron saint of, of France, or one of them. And so William basically seemed to sort of decide he was going to leave the academic world and and retire to a kind of a life of prayer and and uh, meditation and contemplation. But his many of his students followed him there, and so they set up a community. Uh, an intentional community um, of these regular canons, so that they're priests uh, or clerics of one kind or another, but they're living an intentional life, intentional community organized by the rule of St. Augustine. Um, and um, that happened all in the first decade of the 12th century. Uh, and it begins to succeed. Now, the other version of the story is that this also became a sort of a beachhead or a kind of a, 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 a sort of a, a base of operations for the reform movement. So these folks were also trying to continue to put pressure on the cathedral to reform itself, the, the, all the other clergy. Whatever, however that might be, the upshot here, this is probably a longer answer than you were asking for, but the upshot here is that um, that's the beginning of the, the community at the Abbey of St. Victor, which we now call the Victorines. And um, sometime in the second decade of the 12th century, Young Hugh arrives, a man named Hugh, with his with his uncle, whose also name is Hugh, <laughs> um, and they arrive there in Paris. We're not exactly sure. There's a lot of debate about exactly where Hugh might have been from. It might have been Saxony. It might have been Flanders. Um, we'll probably never get to the bottom of that. But Hugh and his uncle come. They're on a kind of a religious pilgrimage. Uh, but Hugh, the younger who eventually will be called Hugh of St. Victor, stays and he joins the community there of the Victorines. That's sometime probably around 1115 or so. Within the next three or four years, Hugh has certainly established himself as the, um, the dominant scholar and intellectual force uh, at that community. And with that particular dimension, we can kind of now step back and sort of describe the Victorine community and its unique sort of set of features because now they're all in place. And the, the kind of the, the quick brief way to say it is the Victorines were simultaneously scholars. Well, then they start, they were simultaneously clerics or, or, or priests. They were canons, right? That they were they were they were involved in, in ministry. But they were also living this sort of semi-monastic life. Um, they were according to a rule that organized their daily life and the life of prayer and 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 and, and common meals and that kind of thing. But then there was also this scholarly dimension that was beginning to emerge, especially with Hugh. But there were other, I mean, William of Champeau, the guy who had originally started it himself was a scholar. So that was also part of it. So the, the way I like to describe the Victorines is they were simultaneously priests, monks, and scholars mm -hmm. all at the same time. And the unique thing is that they, they sort of put all those three things together and they cultivated a life and an account of Christian life, of Christian discipleship that valued all three things. And so, um, yeah, they were, they were simultaneously pursuing a life of the mind, um, a life of the heart, you could say, and also a life of service and ministry. Um, and so those three things, I think, are the, um, the core of the Victorine um, identity. I think one of the things that I found so charming about Hugh is specifically not only that all three of those facets of identity are present in him, but that he does all three things well. Like I'm thinking about Bonaventure who uh, puts out three sort of labels or categories. He says there are doctors and there are preachers and there are contemplatives. And he lists a couple of them in each of those categories, including medieval contemporaries who kind of follow patristic counterparts. And then at the end he says, but Hugh excels in all three of these things. Yeah. And it's it's encouraging because, you know, I mean, the way that the disciplines are so atomized today, uh, it's uh, oftentimes I think uh, people feel like they're one or the other. I'm a scholar, but I'm not a cleric or I'm a cleric, but I'm not a, a contemplative or whatever. But uh, there's no um, I guess they are Renaissance men, literally. Right. They're able to do all three. That's right. No, exactly. And I think that that sense of, of um, 
of, of integration of being able to to you know to kind of to pull together these different facets and different aspects of life um, of Christian life of Christian discipleship that even in Hughes' time, but I think probably even more in Bonaventure's time, we're beginning to kind of separate from each other. Um, you know that that passage in Bonaventure that you mentioned always strikes me as having a kind of a whiff of nostalgia about mm-hmm. it. Bonaventure's writing that probably in the twelve uh, fifties or the twelve sixties. I think by that time, a lot of the you know the, the scholars were being scholars and the monks were being monks and the contemplatives were being contemplatives um, and the pastors were being pastoral. But not very many people were doing all those things at the same time, or at least it was increasingly hard to to kind of pull all those things together. But right, exactly. I think what charms us, I like your word, uh, about this um, this Victorine community and its tradition is that that kind of sense of comprehensiveness and also integratedness. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So when did you decide that you wanted to focus on the Victorines? What about them grabbed your attention and interest? Yeah, so I was a master's student uh, at Princeton Seminary a few years ago. <laughs> um, in the, uh, in the in the early 1990s, and um, teaching his church history at that time it was a wonderful um, Lutheran scholar and pastor named Paul Roram, um, who was my intro to Christ- church history teacher. And so, um, part of part of that semester had a little encounter with the Victorines, and I was beginning to become really fascinated with with the whole of, of sort of pre-modern church history, the early church and, and also, but things medieval were also intriguing me. And I don't remember exactly when I first came across the Victorines or what text it was. I'm, I'm actually, I, I suspect it was, um, it was the classics of Western spirituality volume that has um, Hugh, or sorry, Richard of St. Victor's uh, part of his book on the Trinity translated by Grover's Inn, who's another very, very important, wonderful um, mentor of mine and, and the Victorine scholar, the great, he's kind of, he's kind of the grandfather of, of Victor, North American English speaking uh, Victorine studies. These guys are doing all the things that I care about. They had this, you know, the spirituality, but the, the rigorous scholarly part and the ministry part and that and it was just like, wow, that's a really interesting um, combination that they're pursuing there. And so that intrigued me. Um, and then when I got to the University of Notre Dame for my PhD, there was a wonderful um, scholar in the in the history of Christianity uh, section um, of, uh, of late memory now, Rabbi Michael Signer, um, who did a lot with Jewish-Christian relationships, but he also had a particular interest in the way in which yet another kind of distinctive thing about the Victorines is that they were they were very inter- engaged with, at least as far as we can tell, uh, face-to-face interaction with, uh, with 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 medieval Jews in Paris and other places uh, whom the Victorines consulted in order to kind of uh, get a better sense of as they called it the the, the, the Veritas Hebraica the Hebrew truth the, you know, the, the, um, the the Hebrew scriptures the Christian Old Testament and how the how the Jews understood at least the literal sense mm-hmm. of that text which the Victorines were very very interested in it's a whole other aspect of their thing um, but anyway, Rabbi Signer was there at Notre Dame, and so uh, I actually was all set to write a Victorine dissertation. I was going to write a, a dissertation on Hughes' theological aesthetics um, at Notre Dame, and then um, a couple things changed and conspired uh, during the middle of my program, and I thought, you know what, I'm going to do something different, and I, I pivoted and wrote on a on a 13th century Parisian scholastic theologian, but I, it wasn't because I stopped loving the Victorines. And so I eventually was able to kind of come return to to a, a full-scale, you know, sort of scholarly pursuit of a, of a study on Hugh and, and, and the Victorine world, Victorine mm-hmm. theology. Excellent. Excellent. Sort of central to Hugh's theology is this idea of the reformation of the person into the image of God. And this happens through ordered practices. And we've already kind of hinted, I think, at some of those just in in um, establishing the contours of Hughes' ministry and, and life. But what is it, why is it that Hugh finds that idea of reformation so significant? What does he mean by that? And, yeah, and why, yeah. Is, why does it matter? Yeah, no, he's so interested in that. And that, that was, um, that was kind of the, the, the little thread or the theme or the idea that then became the organizing principle of, of my book on Hugh just started to notice this word and or very or, or variations on it uh, all over the place and I was I was intrigued by that um 
and I, and I guess the, maybe the place to start is with that notion of form, because you know, reform and form, um, and that word itself is a complex word in hue, and it does a lot of things. And, and I, I wrestled a lot with trying to go, what exactly does hue mean by form? Mm -hmm. it uses that word a lot, forma in Latin. Um, and I, I, at the end of the day, I think there's two maybe two central things about form. One is that form has to do with with structure. So, I mean, we, you know, we associate form with platonic forms, perhaps in a philosophical sense, you know, the, the things that make the realities that make something to be the kind of thing that they are, um, you know, we associate with form with essence or nature, like human nature. And, and I think that that's there for Hugh as well. But, but you know, um, Hugh's, Hugh's philosophical foundations is largely, you know, mediated through, through people like Augustine and Dionysius and, and Boethius and other other patristic thinkers, he's not reading Platonic philosophy or Neoplatonic philosophy directly. And so, so some of that Platonic resonance is there, but really for Hugh, I think there's something more distinctively Hugonian maybe. And form has to do with, with, with structure, um, with pattern, um, with the way that lots and lots of things are, are, are sort of organized together into a, into a coherent unity or whole. And so like, in the phrase that we have in English, if birds are flying in formation, right? That that sense of formation there has that that notion of a pattern or a structure or something like that. So that's one part of form. Um, another part of form, though, is that way in which it already kind of we use it in English when when we add that that suffix. So formation has to do with processes, um, or 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 sort of something that one undergoes. To be formed in a certain way, and so it—it's it, a way of, of really describing a certain kind of movement or growth or development. When we talk about being formed or undergoing formation, um, there's a sense of going from from less organized to more organized, or from from you know less um, integrated to more integrated. When we talk about that notion of formation, and, and that's also important for Hugh. And then a, I think a third aspect. It's harder for us to hear in English, although we although we have you know when we talk about somebody's um, a well executed move or a well executed action, we say, "Oh, that was good form." And 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 what we mean by that is some of the things we've already mentioned. You know, they did something well, and they you know whatever the thing was, they you know they 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 accomplished it in the way that you're supposed to accomplish it. But there's also um, an aesthetic dimension to that. There's a there's a sense of when something's done well, when it when it when it executes itself well, it's beautiful. Um, and in fact, that comes through in the Latin. The Latin one of the Latin words for beauty is formosa, mm -hmm. right? And so the so the more that something is well formed, um, the, the more that it is acquired form, the more that it's also beautiful. And that's also an important aspect of form for Hugh. Mm -hmm. So, but I have, still haven't answered your question. Um, so when when Hugh thinks about humans. Or, or actually about creation as a whole, he's really attentive to the way in which created things are have been formed <laughs> um, or are in the process of being formed. Um, and that that starts at the very beginning when he thinks about the you know the original creation of, of all of, of created reality and especially the human create creature, um, that they that they had a particular degree of form, but in fact, and this is kind of interesting, and, and Hugh's not alone in thinking about the, the original creation this way, but, but the original creation for Hugh was not at the, at the, at the kind of the final and, and complete stage of, of created reality that God had originally envisioned or had envisioned all along. The original creation is kind of, it's, 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 it's good, certainly. It's not like it's defective, but there's this higher sort of destiny that, it's, that God has envisioned for it. Um, that it isn't isn't there yet, and and so even before sin and before the fall, Hugh has this idea that humans, if, if even if they hadn't sinned, had to go undergo further formation and development in order to come to the place where they could be in the kind of relationship with God that God ultimately intended. Um, so form and formation were already kind of part of the picture. But then, what sin and 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 the fall do to humans is actually introduced deformation, that what was already a certain kind of integrity and wholeness and, and, and formedness 
now has been compromised by sin. And so the, the effect of sin is a kind of you know, a deformation or a disintegration. Things aren't Things don't work the way they're supposed to. Things don't hang together the way they're supposed to. And in fact, things are not beautiful the way they're supposed to be. There's a kind of um, deformity in the way that that word, even in English, carries that aesthetic connotation of something is deformed. You think of it as having, well, it's lost its beauty in a certain way. So for Hugh, salvation then necessarily involves not just, um, you know, a, a kind of... Uh, taking care in some way of, of, of human disobedience or guilt or sin as important as that is, but also requires this, this well, this reformation <laughs> of, of human nature. It needs to be fixed, it needs to be healed, it needs to be reintegrated um, so that it not only can get back to where it originally was at Eden, but rather to keep going, to kind of now resume, so to speak, the process of formation that it was originally destined for to begin with so one of the interesting things and this this comes through is and it's not unique to hugh although it's not everywhere in the medieval tradition um but this notion of reformatio in melius is the latin phrase which means which is rightly translated as reformation for the better in other words that that the ultimate end result of this reformation process is actually going to exceed the, the uh, bring created nature, created human nature to a place that exceeds where it was originally created. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so that's again maybe longer answer than. No, I, I think it's perfect and and great and and to kind of come alongside that the the categories that you really helpfully isolate in Hugh, because he has this kind of spectrum for characterizing his anthropology, right? So there's the human being who's sinning. There's this disintegration. Um, I think in in his spiritual treatises, he he kind of uses Augustinian imagery, like our hearts were united in in a singular love for God, and then they became disintegrated into as many different channels as things loved. And dissipated, yeah. He loves that Augustinian notion of water, you know, sort of flowing out of a, of a container. Yeah. yeah. So there's this active disintegration, and then there's this kind of middle category of being. Yeah. But the goal isn't just to be. The goal is beautiful being. Exactly, I think is a, a wonderful category. Could you maybe just briefly explain what that is? Yeah, well, it's a very interesting and pretty uniquely, you know, kind of distinctive Hugonian idea. I, I don't really well. There's a there's a there's a little bit of a similar theme in other other parts of the Christian tradition that that kind of does something similar, but not quite exactly what Hugh does. But but yeah, maybe I'll just re quickly re rehearse this thing where where Hugh is thinking about the the original six days of creation, the, mm -hmm. the hexameron. Um, and his interpretation of the six days, and this is kind of interesting, a little sidebar note, but but Augustine, you know, had spent a lot of time trying to figure out what's going on in Genesis 1 and 2 and, and interpreting all of this. And, you know, is it literal? Is it allegorical? And, and how should it be understood? And ultimately, Augustine himself kind of comes down that, well, the creation was instantaneous because God is all powerful. And when God creates and speaks things into reality, they're just there. They don't need, it doesn't need to be a process. It doesn't need to take time or it doesn't need to be you know, step by step, day by day, so to speak. Well, Hugh, who was called by his con contemporaries the second Augustine because he was such a devoted follower of Augustine and who, you know, and, and loved Augustine and revered him. But on this particular point, Hugh's bold enough to, to kind of deviate a little bit and say, no, I'm going to I'm going to interpret this in a different way. And I'm going to think about um, the, uh, take literally and, and, and you know, and, and seriously the, the kind of elongation or the elaboration of creation over these multiple days. And he says, well, in the first three days, God brought um, from non-being, you know, when God starts, there's non-being, there's nothing. But then God brings out of non-being, being in the first three days. And then in the second three days, God takes being and he brings it to beautiful being. He adorns the, 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 the creation. Right, so from non-being to being to beautiful being—that's the pattern that Hugh sees in the first six days of creation. And Hugh, who himself was a teacher, Paul Rorm's book on this is really good about Hugh as a pedagogue. And he, and, and, but, but, but for that reason, I think Hugh is eager to see God as a teacher, God as a pedagogue. And so for Hugh, God's acting in this way, which God, of course, didn't have to. God could have done it totally differently. <clears throat> but for Hugh. Hugh spies a kind of pedagogical motivation on God's part here, that this is meant to instruct us. 
we're supposed to think about these this these first six days and what God does there and we're supposed to learn some lessons from it. And this is the lesson that he thinks we're supposed to learn, that we too in our lives, our individual lives, and maybe even in a kind of a broad, larger sense of humanity, are also meant to recapitulate this process, that we too have been brought from non-being to being. But the goal is not just to exist, as you rightly put it, to be, but to in fact to, to progress and undergo formation um, to eventually arrive at beautiful being mm. that God delights in the beauty of, right? And so this is, and, and here I would, I'll switch uh, the metaphor. There's certainly that pedagogical intent, but for all kinds of reasons, and we can talk about others, some of those others in a second, but for all kinds of reasons, Hugh also likes to think of God as an artisan <laughs> or an artist um, who, um, you know, is, 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 is gradually and, and, but skillfully and adroitly, um, you know, forming and, 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 and shaping and, and organizing and building and constructing something so that it ultimately is beautiful. Um, and, and, and I think, you know, you can probably hear in the background and we should hear in the background that it's right at this time in, you know, in 12th century Paris and other places in 12th century Europe where, where, where individuals are starting to get inspired about building what we think of today as Gothic cathedrals, right? And so, so that notion of stonemasons and, and various artisans who have all these different skills in the production of, of these beautiful, you know, uh, elaborate, uh, complex, but, but, but integrated and united, you know, physical structures. It's, it's just hard to imagine that those, that impulse is not also going on in Hugh's understanding of the spiritual life. So God is an artisan. God's like the master architect who's, who's um, creating these things, these, 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 these creatures that are beautiful and creation that's beautiful. And it, and it seems like the metaphor continues in Hugh's mind in that the Christian person is called to be a sort of sub builder constructing in their own hearts, a chamber for the bridegroom. And, you know, the, these kind of images, a temple, um, he talks about the, the trifold senses of scripture as a beautiful edifice or, or, construction and um, each sense has a different role once the foundation once the yep. wall once the jewels that adorn the, um, yep. the building um, and I think it's also true in his um, in his educational uh, philosophy in the didascalicon where he's laying out the path for a good student you know to kind of build themselves into um, uh, someone who can comprehend and participate in the truth of God yeah uh, it's it's kind of cool to see all those things happening in Hugh sort of at the same time. I mean, they're happening on different levels, but they're not unconnected from each other, which is, I think, maybe goes back to what you're saying about the Genesis account in Hugh's mind. It seems so foundational. It's right, right at the beginning of De Sacramentis where he talks mm -hmm. about it. But in the works of foundation and the works of restoration, which he lays out there, there is a kind of unity because they come from the same artisan. And so yes. what God reveals in one will be true in the other. And so uh, that, that I think allows you to have this really holistic view of, of everything. Yeah, no, that, that's exactly right. I think that that notion that, that divine activity, God's actions in the economy of creation and salvation are consistent, right? God, God, God works in the same way. He's not idiosyncratic or, or chaotic or, or, you know, whatever. Um, and so, right there's this kind of intuition that, that what we, the way we see God acting when God creates, um, we should expect to see something similar when God continues to act, to recreate, you know, and, and to, or to restore what God had created. Um, and so, yeah, that, again, that attention to pattern and to sequence and to taxonomy and to order and, and structure, it's, it's all there. And by the way, that also creates this other kind of deep, um, uh, Victorine, but also later because other other medieval thinkers uh, are influenced by Hugh in this respect. But but that pattern of the six days of creation also translates into a theology of history, mm -hmm. where the whole of salvation history and, and and of course Augustine had speculated about these matters as well. Uh, and so it's not completely original with the Victorines, but um, but that kind of way in which okay, well if, if the six days of creation are like this, then the, there must be six ages of salvation. And, and the result, by the way, if it took only six days to create this, then the result of six ages of creation must be even, you know, even more amazing. And so yeah. there's also that. I love that. Now, we've kind of alluded to some of his works up till now. So there's Didascalicon, which is his uh, treatise on education, um, yeah. which I was classically educated growing up. I've been a classical educator and I it took me 
to get three degrees into higher education before anybody introduced that book to me. And I, I <laughs> I'm kicking myself that it took so long. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how did that happen? Yeah. So there's that. There's De Sacramentis, which is his sort of systematic sort of summa. Um, and then there's his arc treatises and, and this idea of forma, which we've talked about already is a really big deal for him in the arc treatises because he uses the form of the arc to kind of get at salvation history and, and the unfolding of salvation history, but in a sort of devotional way. And it's, it's in a way that's supposed to orient the person who's reading it to the, their spiritual journey in the context of this larger story. So what exactly does he do with the form of the arc in those treatises <laughs> and, and, yeah, yeah what, no, how does that play out? Yeah, no, it's so it's such an interesting aspect of the Victorine um uh world and and their project. And and um uh it's there's a there's a lot of uh, a lot of uncertainty about some of these things, and so I'll have to try to deal with that. But um one way to describe this is to is to note that the Victorines in a certain way are are what you could call symbolic thinkers. And what I mean by that is that, um, uh, well, there's actually two senses of this. One is that they tend to um, gravitate towards certain biblical or scriptural objects or, or realities. And then on the assumption that, um, that the Bible has multiple levels of meaning, not just the literal sense, but these more these deeper spiritual senses of scripture, and then not only the Bible, but also created reality, which is similar in its structure, also has multiple levels, so that everything is is just meaning laden. I mean, you could we sometimes use the word sort of sacramental universe or sacramental even ontology, you know, as, as, as Borsman says it. But nothing is simply a thing by itself. Everything means something else <laughs> until you until you get back to God. God is, you know. Is, doesn't point to anything else, you know, but everything else points to God. Which is why Hugh has that great line in Didiscalicon, learn everything and you'll see that nothing is superfluous. That's exactly right. Nope, that's exactly right. Um, learn everything because everything has these this meaning. So, so Hugh, interesting enough, and I, I don't know why Hugh makes this choice because other Victorines are going to make different choices, but Hugh early on seems to latch on to Noah's Ark, of all things, <laughs> um, as this biblical symbol, uh, this biblical reality that he thinks can be used as, as, a, as a kind of a, a thing to think theologically with. Um, and so he does. And so he's, and, and, and true, in true Victorine form, he starts with the literal description of the boat. He starts with its dimensions and he starts, he's thinking about the, you know, the way it's, the, the ark is described in Genesis. Um, he has and, to argue and, against origins pyramidal uh construction <laughs> That's right exactly exactly right and he's also attempted that like it's got to float right it can't it, it's got to make sense as an actual seaworthy vessel and so that pushes him to kind of think well you know how, how do we interpret what's written there um but anyway but then once he once he does that kind of initial literal interpretation then he can begin to use it as a way to kind of bring in everything else that is important theologically in the world. And so, you know, you mentioned, um, you know, sort of salvation history, but it's also a cosmos. I mean, if you, and there, by the way, I, I, we can't really probably put one on the screen here, but there are some really nice creative artistic renderings of what this, what this might've looked like. If in fact, Hugh ever uh, executed it, there's some debate about whether he actually ever made what he describes or not. Um, but nonetheless, if he, even if he didn't, you know, you're, you're supposed to sort of think about it and imagine it. Um, and it, it, it's got everything in it. It's got salvation history. It's got the, you know, all the elements, it's got the cosmos. Um, it's, it's also got Jesus Christ at the center. It has both, a, you know, it, it, it's ultimately a three dimensional sort of thing as the, as the, of course, the ark would have been, um, even though it's, it's, you know, it, if it was actually painted or, or depicted, it of course would have been two dimensional, but one way in one's mind would want to have had to seen it having height and depth as well as breadth and length. Um, at any rate, to try to help your listeners, um, Hugh invites his students to, in their minds, take this art, take this biblical symbol, and then start using it as a way to kind of organize all of the theological data of, of Christian theology. Um, and so even, you know, 
beyond the things we've already des described, he is a way of talking about the virtues and, and the spiritual life, um, a way of talking about you know Christology, about Trinity, about you know, history, all these things, sacraments. Um, now, he, he, here's the interesting thing, and I think this is the most important thing. Whether or not Hugh himself ever actually painted this or, or, or depicted it somehow physically so that people could see it, what, what, what seems absolutely true to me and most important is that Hugh wanted his students to use this as a mental exercise to effectively to, to reproduce this kind of thing in their mind. It was a form of, and you know, you alluded to this earlier, Wesley. It was a form of soul or mind construction. Mm -hmm. It was an, and and the point was, and and we moderns have the hardest time wrapping our minds around this because of technology. But me medievals had to use their memory far more than we do because they just didn't have the technologies to keep track of stuff. So, so they they cultivated and developed, and we have we have examples of this, you know, that are just remarkable and phenomenal. But they created immense memorial capacities. Mm -hmm. So when Hugh is is you know suggesting the students take this symbol, you know, he says, you know, he actually says this when he's when, in the treatise, as he's, he's he's speaking in the second person, as you are about to build. Lay a foundation in your mind, right? And so you can see he's actually saying, you know, in your mind, you need to start thinking about like, okay, I'm putting the foundation down and then I'm, you know, building the, the superstructure and I put, you know, so so the students are actually forming their minds and their souls in this way. And it's and it's not merely a metaphor. Um, they, the, Hugh understands what, the, what and, and all the medievals did, what you memorize forms you. It's actually a, a form of, it's a formation. <laughs> Like we, like we were just talking about earlier. Um, and so these, these symbol, this symbolic thinking is not just a form of art. Um, it's, it's not just an aesthetic exercise. Oh, we could build this, you know, cool little symbol and we could, you know, put everything in it. It's actually a spiritual exercise. Um, and it, and it has a kind of soul forming, um, uh, goal. Um, and I, yeah. and I, I, I think it helps, I think it helps to be, reminded that there's there were other rhetorical tactics in terms of constructing memory palaces that predate the christian era that sometimes would be in the christian mind deforming like so you would you know you'd memorize certain images to go with parts of the speech you were giving and those right. images would be obscene or vulgar or whatever because you'd be able to remember them easier <laughs> yeah right so, so hugh is i think very um, insistent that when you as a student who are pursuing this beautiful being um, are building a, a mind palace of some sort, it has to be a beautiful mind palace because yeah. that's what you are aiming to build your soul into. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So this becomes, you know, just one thing to say, or at the moment, one thing to say, this becomes a kind of distinctive hallmark of the Victorine tradition. So uh, in the next generation of Victorines, famously Richard of St. Victor, who's kind of Hugh's protege and, 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 and successor at St. Victor, um, grabs a hold of the, the, the Ark of Moses, right, the, the, uh, and and the Ark of the Covenant, and does essentially the same sort of of thing that Hugh had done on the on, the, on Noah's Ark, right, um, and, so, and 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 uses it as a way of of organizing the spiritual life and thinking about the soul and thinking about the soul's relationship to God and have all these layers of meaning in it, and so it's yet another um, uh, uh, device, so to speak, a symbolic device with which to think theologically in this soul-forming way. Yeah. Mm. So you already mentioned this, but I think it, it's worth drilling into this a little more because I think it's it's so cool when you kind of get to the center of the ark. It's Jesus. It's the tree of life. It's the cross for Hugh. Right. That's the very center, and the incarnation is, I think, a huge part of Hugh's theology. Obviously, but but I thought one of the things that stood out to me reading his Summa for the first time was the way that he identifies Christ and wisdom so closely together and so constantly. I mean, that really is the foundation of his Christology. So I was wondering if you could maybe just talk a little bit about why connecting Jesus to capital W wisdom is such yeah. a, a a hallmark of his Christology. Yeah, no, it's a great, it's a great question. And Hugh loves wisdom. I mean, it is such a, it is such an important part of his, of his theological world. And it's Christology, as you rightly note, um, but it's it's also daunting to try to sort of say everything about wisdom that 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 Hugh wants to say. But I think the place to start is actually this 
discussion of form that we were having earlier, one of his early works, um, uh, Hugh talks about um, uh, the the form of wisdom in which the form of the wisdom in which the form of the good stands firm, and so there's a connection between form and and, and goodness, but also wisdom. And so, in, in one sense, a lot of those things that we were talking about earlier with respect to form are, are also true of wisdom. So, wisdom is this sort of um, this structuring, organizing principle that that brings order and coherence and harmony and unity and integration to everything that is formed by it, right? And so, wisdom has this kind of this 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 thing. And so. Um, uh, and for Hugh, you know, of course, um, God creates through God's logos, and of course, logos or word is 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 also the second person. And so, so the creation itself is is sapiential, right? It's it's mm -hmm. it's, it's it's formed by wisdom, and in fact, it's held together by wisdom, right? I mean, so the so you have a, you have a profoundly Christological cosmos for Hugh, and that's also part of what's represented in the Ark because. The ark is the ark of salvation, and so Jesus at the center of that is, of course, first and foremost, the center of salvation history, and and but he's also the center of the cosmos, mm -hmm. and and both of those are you know important for Hugh, and so so you have this kind of sapiential Christology that's a cosmic Christology first of all in Hugh, and it's what it's what me it's what makes the universe to be unified, <laughs> um, and, and so multiplicity and unity are coming together wisely through wisdom. Mm -hmm. Um, it's what creates order and, the, and, 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 and even, you know, part of this intellectual renaissance in the 12th century is a renaissance to discover kind of, it's the kind of the beginning of science and the beginning of Western science and the, and the realization that no, the world is coherent and rational because it's, because it's organized by the logos <laughs> and therefore, but, he, but now you can study it and, it, and it's, it's predictable and intelligible. And so, so, but that's also a Christological sapiential conviction, right, for Hugh. And, and and his contemporaries, um, and so Hugh, or sorry, wisdom has that part of it. Um, another thing to say about wisdom here is to is to think about it in terms of its trinitarian mm -hmm. function. One of my favorite works you were listing some of Hugh's works earlier, but one of my favorite works, which is really just a wonderful, rich treatise, is it's oddly named because it's called "On the Three Days Work." Um, and or de tribus uh, diebus in Latin, um, and it and there's a, it's almost impossible to summarize that treatise because it's just it's doing a lot of things. You really just have to read it and reread it and and, and spend time with it. And I, so I won't try to give you a kind of a genre description because it defies genre. <laughs> but but one of the things that Hugh does in there at the beginning is to talk about um, a, a particular trinitarian triad, a triad of, 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 of properties or attributes of the divine essence. That are and this is a little technical in terms of trinitarian theology, but they're they're appropriated to the three persons. They're not proper names or proper attributes of the Father, Son, and the Spirit, but they have a correlation or an association. And those three are power, wisdom, and goodness. And so, power is appropriated to the Father, starts to play with it, um, and 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 in a wonderful way. And, and he kind of brings them all together. So he says, power created wisely for good, and 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 this organized power and wisdom and, and wisdom, you know, formed power. And, and, you know, and so he kind of weaves these three attributes together, but at the center of that is wisdom. And wisdom again is this Christological um, category, this category of the second person. But the thing that Hugh does there, and this connects to the, to the next aspect of wisdom that I'll, I'll talk about it. And that is that he says, wisdom is manifested in creation by beauty. Beauty is the is the is the thing that that tells us or that shows us wisdom, and so there's that aesthetic dimension to wisdom that is that is so rich, um, and so you know to try to pause and sum up here, wisdom has this sense of, of you know it, it's it, it's this organizing, harmonizing, uh, co, you know, cohering sort of integrating sort of principle, um, provid divine providence. God's activity in history is organized by wisdom. Wisdom, you know, and so so God does all that God does for humans and, and human salvation wisely, um, and it has this sense of fittingness and appropriateness. Again, connected to aesthetics and beauty. And then the last thing to say about wisdom, and then I'll stop. 
Um, for the medievals, the, the, the actual word for wisdom is, of course, sapientia, S-A-P-I-E-N-T-I-A. And they thought, and there's some debate about whether this is right or not, but for them, the word itself, sapientia, was, was understood to be derived from an earlier, from a more fundamental Latin word, sapor, S-A-P-O-R, which is the word for taste. Um, and so for them, ultimately, especially in, 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 the, in, in the relationship between God and humans, and, and, and as humans moved toward greater and greater intimacy with God um, through this formational process, this reformational process, the more they moved into the possibility of tasting God and having this kind of experiential sort of encounter with God that could be best described in these sense metaphors, especially the metaphor of taste um, and tasting the sweetness, tasting to see that the Lord is good and that kind of thing. And so, so the final dimension there maybe of, of, of wisdom is this, this kind of more spiritual or this, or even mystical sort of dimension that, that has to do with, with divine human intimacy and the relationship between God and humans. Mm -hmm. That's helpful. Um, so we're all hopefully being transformed into beautiful being, into Christ, into wisdom, yeah. crystal formation, you call it in the book. Um, what are some of the practices that yeah. Hugh commends to aid the <laughs> disciple to become more like wisdom? Yeah, no, it's, it's a good question. And, you know, um, Hugh is such an interesting thinker, and and he's capable of not not quite like Richard. Richard is the real kind of speculative genius of the Victorines, um, and, and if you go further, even Bonaventure, who I think is kind of a 13th century Victorine, is 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 quite a, you know could be very speculative. But at the end of the day, Hugh is a very practical thinker. He's a practical theologian in all kinds of ways, and what he and and he's pastoral, and he's he's a teacher. And at the end of the day, what he really wants is to equip his students. Uh, to pursue this, you know, this crystal formation or this reformation, and so he's, he's he's always attentive to these very practical things. Well, to, to kind of sum it up, there's there's two things that Hugh thinks are central to human nature that that are have been deformed by sin, but must be must be reformed by grace and by salvation in order to to bring humans to the place where they can be in the right relationship with God. And he sums these up under two headings: um, wisdom or knowledge and virtue. Hmm. Um, and, and so we could kind of maybe simplify that by head and heart. Um, and also, and, and a third maybe aspect of this, and that is uh, virtue for Hugh is not just, uh, although it certainly is a, a set of dispositions or, you know, a, a set of, 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 you know, feelings of, of devotion or something, but it also has to do with the way you actually live with, 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 practices of virtuous practices and moral practices, what we might call ethics even. Um, so knowledge and love or knowledge and virtue, I think are the two fundamental things. And Hugh thinks then about practices that are meant to precisely to be restorative or reformational with respect to these two aspects of the human person. Um, on the intellectual side, and Hugh, Hugh starts here, um, you know, you, you noted earlier his progression from the literal to the allegorical to the moral sense of Scripture, and that's kind of his pattern. So the allegorical sense of Scripture is the theological or the doctrinal sense of Scripture. Um, and, and I would say for, for Hugh, there are two fundamental intellectual practices that he focuses on and tries to instill in his students as the things they should be doing in the reformation of their minds or their intellects. The first of them, this will sound funny to maybe to your listeners, not to you or I, but but it's just Hugh at his most pedagogical basic. But the first practice, the first intellectual practice is reading, lectio. Um, and and as, you, as you noted, the Didascalicon, the subtitle for the Didascalicon is this is a study in, in reading. And he writes this whole book on how to read. Um, and, um, and, it, and in lots of ways, it's very basic, but in other ways, it's very sophisticated. Um, but for Hugh... That was the foundational practice. You had to, if you were going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, you had to learn how to read. Um, and, and it was a discipline and it, and it required a lot of work. You had to learn how to read and what to read and what order to read in. And he talks about all those things in, in that discussion. Um, and by the way, just a side note, I'm going to sound like an old grouchy you know, sort of man, but, but I have to say the more that 
the more I teach undergrads these days, I hope it's okay to say this. It's totally okay. <laughs> the, the more I find like we don't we we stopped teaching people how to read. And I used to when I used to sort of think think about Hugh and his project, I, I always kind of moved past reading kind of quick. Like yeah, yeah, reading. We, you know, today we know how to read. Maybe in the eleventh century, the twelfth century, they didn't know how to read. But we you know we learn how to read and we can move on to the other things. But now I'm like no no no, we got to go back to learn how to read and learn how to read in the way that Victorines read because they read with sophistication. They read with this expectation that there was not just a surface, but there was depth. Mm. And they read in such a way that they understood that what reading was a, Hugh actually says this, Hugh is learning, reading is learning how to conform the mind to the principles that one is reading. It's not the other way around. It's not conforming the text to myself, but conforming myself to the text. So anyway, I don't want to get on my soapbox, soapbox <laughs> but, but Hugh starts with reading. Um, but there's a second intellectual practice that also we we have a, it's a word that we're familiar with but but we mean he means something very different than what we tend to mean by this word today but that second practice is meditation um meditatio and it follows from lectio so you, you have to learn to read first and reading is kind of gathering reading is is acquiring biblical literacy and learning the narrative and learning all of the all that is to be learned in scripture especially scripture although by the way i should sorry i'm getting wound up but uh, I should I should point out that reading here is not just for the text of Scripture, but right. you know, Hugh, with all of the with many of the medievals, understood creation also to be a book. Right? God wrote two books. There's the book of creation and the book of Scripture, and the same skills apply. And and Hugh is wanting his his students to learn how to read everything. Um, there's a contemporary uh, phenomenologist, uh, French phenomenologist, Emmanuel Falk, um, who has really grabbed a hold of Hugh and Hugh's. Uh, a, a discussion of reading and, and Falk thinks that this is really, really important and brilliant stuff that Hugh is doing. And I think he's right. But, but Falk also notes that for Hugh, reading is the central task of being human because we, we're, we're actually supposed to read the whole universe. God, God is an author, <laughs> not just in one book. And even Christ is a book, right? And so you get this book metaphor all over the place, the book of scripture, the book of creation, the book of Christ, who is the lens by which we learn how to reread. Anyway, but reading is gathering. Reading is harvesting. Meditatio is constructing. It's building. And so meditation is not just kind of this vague sort of like, oh, you just sort of think, but rather it's a disciplined, arduous, agonistic even form of, of intellectual exercise where you learn to think carefully and in a disciplined way and also begin to organize what you're thinking about into a kind of a coherent, mm -hmm. you guessed it, form or structure, right? So that, that so that it becomes and, and so. You know, part of what's going on with meditation is that that's actually the activity that is that corresponds to the allegorical sense of scripture. But it's also what Hugh is doing, for example, in the De Sacramentis when he is writing one of the very first medieval summas of theology, which is a systematic account of theology where everything is kind of organized in a kind of now, not the, not the scripture. Well, it's still a little bit scriptural, but it's but now Hugh's beginning to realize, no, we got all this scriptural data, but but, you know, Scripture talks about the Trinity in multiple places. It talks about Jesus in multiple places. But we got to bring everything together in one place if we're going to try to say something coherent about the Trinity. And we got to bring all this stuff together in one place if we're going to say what we need to say about creation or about Jesus or about church or about sacraments, et cetera, or grace and all that. So we get, begin to get this um, intellectual, we get the creation of what we think of today as theology, as systematic theology or constructive theology. But it, but for Hugh, it grows organically out of this first practice of reading. But it's but the, the theological activity, the activity of the theologian, culminates in meditatio in this mm -hmm. particular way. I really love that because I think again we see that unity at different levels going on with how he describes the learning process, the reading process, and then the the sort of uh, encounter one has with scripture. Because uh, in Didascalicon, you know, there's there's the trivium, grammar, dialectic, rhetoric, which which corresponds, maps onto those three stages of reading, right? Grammar, what is it? What is it say? Yep. Dialectic, how do I put these pieces together? Rhetoric, how do I uh, explain <laughs> these? How do I bring them into reality? And, and then I think for Hugh, it, you have to know the trivium. You have to know those three steps in order to read scripture well, because each one of those steps maps onto one of the senses, the, the literal. What does the text say in the yep. historical sense? What is the deeper meaning underneath it? How do we put these parts together? And then 
none of that really matters if you can't transpose it into life. There has to be this kind of moral living out of the scripture as well. And That's so all, right. all those levels are connected for him. If you if you become a good reader, then you can become a good Christian. Um, That's it's right. It's so cool to see all that all that unity there. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's right. And so you, you've named that you've, you've introduced them the second part of it. So, you know, we're talking about these two intellectual practices, reading and meditation. And then the third practice is the practice of, well, there's two actually, and one of Hughes works, he says this in a very lovely way. He actually talks about five steps or, or five stages. And he says that there's reading and meditation, what we, which we just talked to talked about. And then he says prayer and performance. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think those two things follow on reading and meditation, but prayer for Hugh is, is the initial internalization and, and, and personal appropriation of what's been learned and what's been studied, right? And so prayer is an interior um, uh, uh, affective moment, right? Where, where, where the, the things that have been learned are now no, not simply known, but loved. Mm. And there's a there's a kind of a cultivation of the affections, and a cultivation of the heart. Um, so that that's the prayer, and then performance is is the actual execution, right? The living uh, in, in in external embodied uh, ways that are virtuous and that are moral and that are ethical and that are pastoral and ministerial and, and all those things, all that external embodied activity, which, by the way. For Hugh, it's again, it's really remarkable. Hugh's not just thinking about, you know, maybe corporal works of mercy or, or, or you know, uh, celebrating the sacraments with, with, you know, pastors or whatever. But he actually, in one of his early works, one of his most basic works, called the on the formation of novices, he's, he's talking about the, you know, the the, the, the the Victorines in their community. But he actually gives very detailed instructions about how you're supposed to walk and gesture and chew your food. And, you know, and so he's attentive to like, you know, all these just very basic practice, like a finishing school, right? You know, you know, how do you carry yourself? How do you, you know, you can't laugh with your mouth open. That's gross, right? I mean, it's, 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 it's remarkably practical kind of instruction, but it has to do with like, you know, it's just integrated Christian living. Sorry about the phone. Um, so, uh, so anyway, prayer and performance, um, uh, kind of fill out the virtue side of things, right? And so you get, you get knowledge and virtue or, or intellect and, you know, head and heart. Um, and by the way, um, this is kind of what I'm working on recently, but I, 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 there's a way I, you can put all these three things together that I kind of fond of, and I'll just throw this out there. But um, we, uh, you know, a word that we use in theological context is orthodoxy, right? For, for getting doctrine right. Um, and I think, you know, that that word applies very nicely to Hugh's whole intellectual project, right? Because, and for Hugh, orthodoxy doesn't simply mean, you know, get divide, you know, distinguishing between truth and falsehood or between, you know, right doctrine and heresy. But it has to do with all those things we were talking about, about getting everything rightly ordered mm -hmm. and, and, and structured so that it coheres and hangs together. I mean, it's certainly he's concerned about right doctrine and, and avoiding heresy. But it, but it's bigger and broader. So, so orthodoxy is the way I would describe that intellectual aspect of the Victorine project. But that that interior affective um, part of it is also super important for the Victorines, and I, I'll call that. It's a little bit of a barbaric word, but I'll call it orthopathy, ordered pathos. Or, or you know, it's, it's a parallel word to orthodoxy. It's just that we pathos is that sense of feeling, um, and so. But the Victorines are all about. And this is very Augustinian about ordered love. How do you get your loves and your affections and your desires rightly organized and, and ordered in the right way toward the right thing in the right degree and the right amount? And, and they're very attentive to the heart and feeling and, 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 and even experience. But that has to be ordered. Um, it has to be organized. It has to correspond to truth. Right. And so so they're interested in not only orthodoxy, but orthopathy. But then orthopathy flowers in right action, in right practice. And so we, you know, we tend to talk about this a lot, orthopraxis. But I think one way to describe the Victorine project is they're interested in what I now call the all three orthos, right? The orthodoxy, the orthopathy, and the orthopraxis. And interested, not only interested in all three, but trying to figure out how they all three fit together, right? How does, how does your orthodoxy shape your orthopathy and then how does your orthopathy flower in orthopraxis but at the same time 
what you do externally shapes how you feel and 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 so that you know these things are all interwoven with each other and and Hugh, they have brilliant often insights into the interrelationship of these three different dimensions of, of, the, of christian discipleship excellent excellent well i'm sure uh if people have made it this far in the episode they probably see something in the victorines <laughs> that we also enjoy and um and so they may be wondering and one of our listeners uh jeff ahead of time sent in a question what what would be a good reading list for someone who's interested in hugh who hasn't read him before yeah. where would be a good place to start yeah well um it's interesting so right about the same time about 10 years ago three different monographs three different books on hugh appeared um and the one i'll recommend first which i think is a wonderful and it's a wonderful book uh is by paul Roram, this um, this mentor of mine and teacher who um published a book on hugh about a year before my book came out and, and i i would say start with that one that, that's a great introduction to hugh and to all kinds of aspects of Hugh's project um and then there's the, the book that you've already referenced of mine, and then also a colleague of mine now here at Boston College who also was a, a classmate of mine at Notre Dame, Franklin Harkins, um, uh, wrote, a, wrote a, a very fine uh, book on Hugh, especially Hugh's um, uh, practices around reading and, and about, the, about the way that this, these intellectual practices and reading practices are, are restorative of, of human nature. So in terms of scholarly literature, I think I would start with, you know, with, with one or more of those three books. But there's also um, this, this wonderful series of translations now, of, of English translations of the of Victorine texts, um, 10 volumes now out there. Uh, the, the, the whole series is called Victorine Text in Translation. Um, and um, while there's, and, and each one of the volumes is kind of thematically organized. And so, but, but one of, there's, there's a couple of really rich volumes in there that maybe is a good place to start. One of them is on the spiritual life. Mm -hmm. Uh, that has a lot of the jewels of rich of Hugh and, and others, Richard as well, of their reflections on the spiritual life and the very and, and lots of really practical um, uh, instruction uh, and treatises on that. There's also one of the volumes is just devoted to Victorine discussions of love, mm -hmm. um, and it's also a very lovely volume. Uh, and I, I think that those are two that, that would be maybe good starting points. But all the I mean, yeah. they're out there. You and and a lot of them are now available in paperback. At, relatively inexpensive and so um they're great resources for people who want to dig deeper the one on, there's two on scripture that are pretty good too the one on it, one is just called scripture and the other one is called scripture in practice or something like that yep. and it's more yep. of an applied um like there's the debate between adam and richard about what to do with isaiah and the and the um, young woman or virgin passage yep. and in conversation yep. with uh judaism which is very that's right no that's yeah exactly today Emmanuel. Uh, there's also a volume devoted to, uh, to to Victorine preaching and sermons, so people who are interested in you know in, in learning a little more about the Victorines as preachers uh, could consult that. Excellent, excellent. Well, we're so glad that you were able to come on and talk about this. This is something we've been wanting to do for a while, so this is this is awesome. Now, one thing we like to do as we as we end our episodes is uh, we give everyone uh, something that we're into lately. It can be anything. It can be a, a film, a, a music, movie, book, whatever. So, Dr. Coleman, what are you into these days? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, I, I think I mentioned to you before we came on the air, I, I'm, I'm knee deep in medieval Trinitarian theology right now with this course that I'm teaching, which is, um, which I really love. I love, uh, I love thinking about the Trinity. So I mean, I guess you could say I'm into the Trinity. <laughs> <laughs> Not a bad thing to be into. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, I'm uh, uh, <laughs> from the, from the sublime to, to tending toward the ridiculous. So I'm, I'm also, I'm, I'm a Hoosier by birth and I, I'm addicted to playing basketball, so I, I had an injury. So I'm, I'm back into the back on the basketball court, which is a nice thing to do. That probably wasn't the kind of thing you were asking about, but no, no, but no. It's, it's 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 another thing I'm into. Um, the other thing, though, is I'm I'm actually trying to write a book on um, on a kind of an introduction to medieval theology, which is centered around the Victorines and the Franciscans, and so so I've I've been uh, this kind of these these orthos, you know, that we were just talking about. Those are that's kind of the, the little organizational principle that I'm using to try to kind of describe what I think is really interesting about medieval theology, although not about all, I mean, it's, you have to kind of be a little bit focused in, in such a project. So I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to get busy and finish that. Well, when that comes out, we would like to have you on again, I'm sure. Well, I'd be, I'd be, I'd be delighted. delighted Excellent. To talk with you. Excellent. Well, thank, 
Thank you so much for the opportunity. It's been a real pleasure, Wesley. To have Absolutely. It has been great. If um, if listeners do want to follow any of your work, is there a place where they can do that? Or is I you have a faculty page me, on Boston College? I, I do. I mean, it's just got a few things. I, probably the easiest thing would be just to, I mean, if they want to know more, whatever, just to send me an email, I suppose. Sure. And yeah, so. Sounds great. Well, but, thank yeah, but you thanks. so much. It's been great. I, I really appreciate it. And uh, thanks for the opportunity. Absolutely. Well, listeners, uh, be sure to follow us on Facebook or Twitter, and you can also like and subscribe to us on YouTube. Leave us a rating and review on iTunes, where, wherever you get your podcasts, and you can also always join our communion of Patreon saints for $5 a month. The peace of God, which passeth all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. The blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost be amongst you and remain with you always. Amen.